And my sermon today is about Paddington Bear going to Syria. Did I leave Paddington down there? Come on, toss Paddington up here for me. Let's see if I can catch him. Woo, there he is. Everybody, I want to know before I go on, does anybody here know Paddington Bear? Anybody here know Paddington Bear? It's funny, it's mostly women. Strange, I don't know why. Men, get sensitive. Michael Bond died on John, uh, uh, Michael Bond, the creator of Paddington Bear, died on June 27th this summer. Um, He created Paddington Bear in 1958. And he said about him this, the little teddy bear from darkest Peru who appears in Paddington Station having been a stowaway and escaped on a lifeboat. Isn't that a, a, a kind of a beautiful picture? Anyway, Bond said of him, please look after this bear. He was a refugee with a label that said, please look after this bear and uh, thank you. And he had a little suitcase with him. In the 2014 movie about Paddington, the backstory has his Aunt Lucy and his Uncle Pastuzo uh, having been devastated by an earthquake. They send him off in hope that he will find a new home. And Aunt Lucy explains, long ago, during the war, people in England sent their children by train with labels around their necks so that they could be taken care of by complete strangers in the countryside where it was safe. They will not have forgotten how to treat strangers. They will not have forgotten how to treat strangers. Paddington finds himself in England at Paddington Station and he's lonely. It's a lonely place to be. And it seems that people have forgotten how to treat strangers. It's a lonely place where no man cares for his soul. And and, and until he's found there in Paddington Station by Judy and Jonathan Brown, uh, he's lost. But the Brown family adopt the little lost bear. Mrs. Brown is kindly attached to him, but Mr. Brown is protective of his family. He's suspicious of the foreigner, suspicious of his motives. Doesn't that sound like what's going on today? Doesn't that sound a little bit like uh, all this nativist uproar that's going on all over North America now, it seems to have spread? How should we react? How should we respond? I'm going to share with you a number of stories this morning. And I don't want you to tell anyone about it. Don't say a word to anybody, okay? Not the stories from my life. Not the stories from Jesus' life. It's really important that you don't share what I'm going to say this morning with anyone. Just like Jesus said, he commanded them to tell no one. So when you're chatting with your buddies down at Tim's tomorrow or sometime this week, and you tell them what you heard in the sermon, because I know you must talk about the sermon every time you go out with your friends to Tim's. Don't tell them what you heard here today. Don't say a word about it. Shh. Quiet. You got that? Now, I'm a pastor. I've been a Pentecostal pastor for like 30 
years. And, and I pray for the sick. I, I, I can't tell you how many sick... Oh, wait, excuse me. Hold on a second. Can you just give me a moment here? I just see somebody. Wait, oh, right down here. Yeah, you, sir, you, 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 sir, sitting at the back like that. Look, how could we have such a well-dressed man, such a, a clearly upstanding uh, citizen, and, and someone as well, uh, well-heeled as you are? We, we, can't, we can't have rich guests at Glad Tidings and make them sit at the back. Like, please, come on up here, would you please? I've got the best seats in the house. I'm going to place you right next to Pastor Todd, because that is really the best seat in the house. So, so just be there. Are you, are you good? Hey, listen, can I tell you? I love your clothes. Real sense of style. Excellent. Well done. Okay, sorry folks, I just needed to do that. We, we can't have that happening. Not at Glad Tidings. As I said, I, I've had a chance to preach probably, or to, to pray for probably hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And, and I've laid hands on the sick. And I've always done it out of obedience and faith and hope. But I have to confess, very few miracles in my life. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. So one time, I'm, I'm on a missions trip in Kyrgyzstan. We're doing a pastor's conference. There's about, believe it or not, 700 pastors in Kyrgyzstan sitting in this auditorium. And I do my leadership training thing. I think I've done a really great job. I've given them the best John Maxwell material that I could find. And, and, uh, and so I've taught. And it's been wonderful. And there's questions and answers. And I'm waiting for really good questions to interact with. And one guy gets up. He says, excuse me. Can you just tell me how many miracles has God done in your ministry? You know, I'm not usually one to be stuck for words. Uh, uh, but, 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 but I remembered, I remembered, because it happened right here in this church, and while it wasn't exactly in this spot, it was right about this spot at the altar here, where I prayed for some people. I prayed for some, believe it or not, we've got five kids, believe it or not, I prayed for some women who could not have a child. And, and they had tried and tried, and they were depressed and discouraged. I, I, I remember laying hands on and it happened probably three times. I laid hands on someone, and I prayed for them, and within a matter of weeks, they were pregnant. Incredible. What a miracle. Amazing. And so, while I'm going, uh, 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 I, I remembered one miracle God had done, and I told them this story. Well, when, this, when the conference was over, this woman comes up to me. Stink, I wish I'd never said a thing, you know. She comes up to me, she explains, she, she can't get pregnant, it's been years, they can't have a baby, and she really wants a baby, and there's tears coming down her cheek, and, and so she asks me to pray for her. And I'm just going, oh God, why didn't I just shut up, you know. So I lay my hands on her, and I, and I begin to pray, you know, kind of hoping against hope. Do you ever pray those prayers around you? No, you guys are men of faith here. I, I'm praying, oh God, please, just God, do something miraculous, and, and, and then I thought to myself, well, that's it. You know, the prayer's done. I'll never see this person again. It's okay, right? The next year, we went back to Kyrgyzstan. And I hear, as soon as my foot sets foot on the ground, I hear, this woman is looking for me. 
I'm thinking, oh no, she's going to come and find me and she's going to tell me, you prayed for me a year ago and I still haven't gotten pregnant and you know, I just felt awful about it. And so everywhere I went, I, I found that this woman was looking for me. Finally, she catches up with us at a wedding and she says, I just wanted to show you my brand new little baby. This is the baby I prayed for. Now, now I know you're thinking, really, David? Is that really the baby? Is that really the baby that you prayed for? And the answer is, no, it's a picture I got off the internet, okay? <laughs> but, but it really did happen. It really did happen. I prayed for this, this woman. She had a baby. Now, now, listen, please, shh, don't tell anybody about it, okay? Not, not a word about this. Anyway, I've prayed for lots of people, and, you know, I'm always looking for miracles to happen, but... They don't seem to happen like I want them to. Anyway, Jesus is on the road in Mark chapter 7. And, uh, and he's, he's just come back, or he's just uh, uh, on uh, a vacation, kind of. Jesus left that place, it says, and, and uh, he went to the vicinity of uh, Tyre. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. I love that. He didn't want anybody to know it. But, but wherever Jesus goes, people know God is here. He could not keep his presence secret. It says, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek. She wasn't even Jewish. She was born in Syrian Phoenicia. She's a Gentile, for heaven's sake. And she begs Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, Jesus is on vacation in Lebanon. Can't you get a break? I mean, isn't it possible for Jesus to have a vacation? He's, he's, he's on a desert holiday. I know you're saying... Really, David, is he really on a vacation? Is that what the Bible really says? Okay, these are just pictures I got off the internet, right? I, I don't know if the Bible says he's on vacation, but he's somewhere where he shouldn't be. He's, he's gone over the boundary. He's gone over to the Gentile side of the world where he ought not be, because after all, he's the Messiah. He's the king of what? He's the king of the Jews. What's he doing over there? But he goes over there, and this woman throws herself at him. And she says, my daughter is possessed by a demon. Now, how many of you have seen those harrowing pictures of little Syrian refugee children? You know, little children. They, 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 these pictures can rend your hearts. And Jesus is moved. But then he says something unbelievably shocking to this woman. It's, it's shocking to hear these words out of the mouth of Jesus. He says, listen, honey. Well, maybe he doesn't say that either. Got that off the internet. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Like, you got to understand, that's a racial slur. I mean, calling people dogs, calling Gentiles dogs, 
What kind of talk is that? And in, in Jewish culture, it was one of the lowest things that you could call somebody was a dog. It's not right to toss it to the riffraff, to the dogs. The woman says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Wow. Can you say wow? Say it backwards. I mean, that, that, is, that, is, worth, that is worth stopping for a moment and thinking about. What kind of faith? What kind of audacity does this woman have? She's just been called a dog. Yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs. And Jesus says, for a saying like that, go. The demon has left your daughter. Now go home to your Gentile people. Go home to your pagan people. Just don't tell our people about what happened here. Don't want it to be known. You go home and, 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 and your daughter will be healed. And the woman goes home and she finds her daughter miraculously healed. Now, just, just don't share this with anybody. This is private. Don't talk about this. Excuse me. Just one more moment. Hold on a second here. I see something. Like, folks, you won't believe who we have with us. Like, hold on a second now. Way back here at the back. How could we let someone this important sit this far back? Can would you come over here? Like, now we have a superstar in our midst, and you guys want to make her sit at the back of the church. What kind of church is this? Come on now. We will just we just will not allow that here. I'm gonna give you a place of honor. And would you take a look? You are so beautifully attired, and I love your bling. Look at that. It's pretty special. Anyway, come on over. I'm gonna make, you can sit right next to Pastor Todd. That's what you can do, because you're that important to us, okay? Uh, and did I mention how wonderfully attired you seem? Anyway, let me just continue the message here. Ah, uh, where am I? Where am I? My notes. So after this incredible miracle that takes place in Lebanon, Jesus is traveling home from his holiday up in Syria. And he's on the road. How many of you know all kinds of things happen on the road with Jesus? I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And, and as he travels those dusty roads, things happen. He goes places. Miracles take place. One time, back in 1975, I was on the road. I, uh, it had been a rough year. It was April of 1975. And... I know. You're saying, really, David? Really? Is that you? Really? I mean, look at this hair. I, for years, I wanted to have hair like that, but I couldn't do it. I always had this afro kind of hair, you know? So, so, okay, that's not really me, all right? Just a picture I found on the internet. But I, I'm, I'm hitchhiking down the road, 
because I flunked out of university. Mark it down. What did you call me? The Reverend Dr. David Corey. Flunked out of university. Western Ontario. Flunked out. Completely bombed. I was strung out on drugs. I think I was an alcoholic. I mean, it was a big mess. And so I'm hitching down the road. And, and, and a guy picks me up in a little Volkswagen and he starts talking to me and he, and he, and he, says, he says these amazing things. He said, uh, uh, um, you know, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? And as, as, as I began to tell him what my problem was, I, I told him, I used to believe in Jesus Christ, but I don't anymore. Now, if you're a Christian, do you need any more encouragement to witness to somebody? You know, if somebody said that to you, I used to believe in Jesus, don't you think you'd have the courage to say something? This guy started talking to me about Jesus. And all of a sudden, this little Volkswagen Beetle was filled with the presence of God. And Jesus began to talk to me. I mean, I knew it wasn't that guy talking to me. But I was sure when I got into this car, there was nobody else in the car. But I remember, I actually remember looking behind me across the bucket seats to see, is there somebody sitting back there? Who's that talking to me? Jesus was talking to me. And my life was transformed in a moment, in an instant. I mean, I made a 178-degree turn. It's not 180 degrees. I'm still a little bit imperfect. If you ask my wife, she'll be glad to tell you. But my life was transformed that day in that car. Now, now, shh, don't tell not a word to anybody about it, okay? That's just between you and me. Let's not, you know what I mean? Anyway, Jesus is on the road. And he passes through an area that the Bible calls the Decapolis. The ten towns, the ten cities. Now, I'm not being a racist or anything, but let's just say it's not a very nice neighborhood. A generation earlier, well, to use one public figure's language, a swarm of immigrants had flooded in that place. Bunch of Roman, Greek pagans invaded our sacred land. They didn't share our faith. They, they weren't our sort of people. They did things that we find absolutely <coughs> repugnant They did, these people, they have the nerve to keep pigs, for heaven's sake. They've got hog farms. Well, Jesus happens to show up. Of all places in the Decapolis. And these immigrants, they bring a deaf man forward. And they beg Jesus to lay hands on him. So Jesus takes him away from the crowd. And, and he puts his fingers into the man's ears. And he spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven. And with a deep sigh said, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus says, listen, he commands them not 
to tell anyone. Shh. Keep it to yourself. Just like you must not tell anyone about that woman who got pregnant finally after prayer, or the druggie who got delivered on the 401, or, oh, wait, hold on a second, wait. There's one, see, one of these. There's an, another person that you people have let be, get seated at the very back of the church, like, like sitting with the riffraff back here, sitting with, listen, I am so sorry. I want to tell you, though, you, you look so wonderfully dressed. I mean, you look like you could possibly be a very wealthy man. And you're the kind of person that we like in our church. You know, the kind of person whose tithe comes out to six figures. That's the kind of guy we want around here. The kind of guy who can help us with the debt reduction. You know what I'm talking about? And I want to tell you, I like that watch. Is that, tell me. Wow. Is that one of those watches? No, it is. It is, it is. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 hold on. Excuse me, as much as we like you, could you just move, please? No, no, I mean move to the back. Like, get. We want, we want, and you can sit next to Pastor Todd, oh, okay. okay? Wait, 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 hold on, hold on, wait. I think Paddington's got something to say. Hold on a second now. What's that you say, Paddington? You got something to say. What? Paddington says, I'm not allowed to say to people in fine clothes, have a seat over here. And, 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 and I'm certainly not allowed to tell people that they can go to the back or they can sit on the floor. And what's that? Paddington says that when I do that, I'm dishonoring the poor. When I do that kind of... What's the... Paddington said... Really? Paddington says it's blasphemy. And it hurts Paddington's heart. Because he says Jesus didn't just heal rich people or Jewish people or faithful people. He healed a, a Syrian mother's little daughter. He healed a deaf immigrant in the ten towns from a completely different faith community. And what? And Paddington says these stories are very important to him because he too is a refugee from darkest Peru. They tell him that God loves even bears like him. Somebody go, ah. Oh yes, and would anybody like a marmalade sandwich? So I... I guess I'd better not be treating you as less important than everybody else. Would you get back to the back? Gee. I want to I close by naming the nameless. I want to talk about the nameless one. Who is the nameless other? That person that we don't mind stepping over the top of to, to accomplish the goals that we have in mind. That person that we don't mind sitting on the floor or sending to the back so that the people that we'd prefer to have around here get to have a front row seat. What about the nameless other? So let me tell you about Syrian refugees in Europe. 
Some people are really, really worried about those people. Those people. Germany took in one million refugees in 2015. Britain said they would take 20,000 over a five-year period. Some people seem to embrace the refugee thing. Other people, you know what? Not so much. What about these people? I preached last year at a Church of God pastors conference in Germany. And I'll tell you, Germany, they're incredibly organized. They brought in those one million refugees and they sent them in little proportionate numbers to each city and town and village. Every little village has their proportionate number of refugees. And let me tell you, the church has really stood up and done something about it. They have made sure that these people have uh, clothing because they get a certain amount of money for food and a certain amount, but they make sure that they're taken care of and somehow they're being assimilated into the community. And, And I was talking to one pastor at this conference and he told me, this is a pastor of a church of 70 people. He told me that a few weeks before the conference, he baptized 70 Iranian Muslims. That that is worth a hand. Let me tell you more. I saw him at Easter, and I asked him, so how's it going? He said, I think I got 70 more to baptize. Another pastor at that conference said, but you, you know what? Here's the truth. There is incredible opportunity for ministry here, but you gotta be ready, willing, and able. You got, when these people call, you gotta drop everything and go and take care of that, because if you don't answer the needs, somebody else will. So the church needs to step up. And let me tell you something, folks. We think all these Muslims, they're all these terrorists, they're all these jihadists. Let me tell you. How many of you know what the number one killer of Muslims in the world is today? What's the number one killer of Muslims? Other Muslims. You understand that? So a lot of these people, now not all of them, and not even the majority, but there are people who are sick sore and tired of Islam. And what they need is they need to see the love of God manifest in Jesus Christ. In Brussels, we work with a couple who've spent 16 years as Assemblies of God missionaries, uh, Sam and Naomi Brello. Uh, They've been in the Middle East for 16 plus years. They speak Arabic. They even watch TV in Arabic. And they say it's a lot cleaner than it is in English. They, they watch soap operas, believe it, in Arabic. And, and, and uh, these people, they teach at the school that I teach at, but their real heart is for the Muslim ministry. They work in Arabic churches. They, they, they went and, and they, they fed people when they were in tents. They helped them to find places to stay. And now they have a, a, a monthly um, uh, dinner that they put on and and often they'll get between 50 and 100 Arabs uh, mostly Muslims and they preach the gospel to them and they answer questions they they, they do a Q&A thing it's incredible and what they're finding is people are coming to know Jesus Christ how many of you remember the 1040 window Anybody remember that phrase, the 1040? You have to be an old Christian to remember that. Back in the 90s, we used to pray for the 1040 window. It's the lines of latitude where the the greatest proportion of people who've never heard the gospel live. 
And you would hear these incredible facts, like in Kuwait, there are seven Christians in the entire nation. In Iran or Iraq, there are 16 Christians. And you'd hear these amazing statistics, and you'd say, is there any hope? But we would pray. We would hope against hope. Anybody know what I mean by, you know, God, will you do something, anything? You know what I believe? I believe the crisis that we're seeing right now around the world This craziness that's going on is God's answer to that prayer. Because more Muslims are coming to Christ today than ever before. There's transformation taking place. And we can be a part of it if we're willing to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So our problem isn't Islam, our problem isn't Muslims, our problem isn't foreigners or aboriginals or blacks or anything else. It's the other, the nameless other. And as long as we stand on this side of the room and look at those people on that side of the room, or we stand on this side of the country and look at people on that side, or we stand on this side of the world and look at those nameless people on that side of the world, as long as we do that, people will go to hell. They remain nameless and scary and threatening. They remain the other. But when we know them and touch them and see them and we give them a name and we let Jesus touch them and we see Jesus interacting with Ali and Muhammad and, 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 and we see Jesus How can you not tell anybody about it? How can you not say anything about it? It's impossible not to tell other people. If you've experienced amazing answers to prayer, it's impossible not to tell the person on the desk next to you at work or the person down the line at the factory. If you come into God's church and you experience a love where people, whether they are poor or rich, important or unimportant, significant in the world's eyes or not, people who are who are uh, it's hard not to tell your friend when you're down at Tim's it's hard not to say something about it when you encounter a Jesus who treats Syrian mothers and deaf immigrants not as statistics but as human beings in need of help and love it's hard not to tell My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, well, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world those from darkest Peru 
Has not God chosen those to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you, you, you have dishonored 